Well, uh, tonight we're going to be in Exodus chapter 18, and we may even get into uh, the first verses of chapter 19. And uh, we've, we've now uh, gone through the 10 plagues. We've gone through the Exodus from Egypt, Pharaoh's pursuit, pinning the children of Israel against the Red Sea, only to be buried in the midst of the sea after the Lord makes a way for his people to get through that. They head into the wilderness of sin. There they find that uh, they need food. The Lord gives them miraculous food from heaven in the form of manna. They need water. The Lord gives them miraculous water from a rock. They have a challenge, the Amalekites, the enemy of God's people attempt to defeat them and God gives them favor and they defeat this enemy. And now they are making their way into the Sinai. And, um, and this massive company of people are moving through the Sinai wilderness. Um, it's interesting because they will spend the next year pretty much in that wilderness. And there's some 50, over 50 chapters of the Bible that deal with just that year that they were in the wilderness of Sinai. And so we start out in verse 1 of chapter 18. We read, And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land, and the, other, and the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now he had, now he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. And so here we have this man, uh, Jethro, coming from Midian to now meet up with Moses in the Sinai wilderness. Um, Jethro is the father of, of, of Moses' wife, um, and and. It, it appears that Moses sent Zipporah, his wife, and his two sons back to Midian as he knew things were going to heat up with the, the Egyptians, as Moses is, is imploring Pharaoh to let his people go. And knowing all that was going to transpire after that, probably from the standpoint of safety and the like, he sent Zipporah and, uh, and his two sons, Gershom and Eliezer, back to be with her father until things settled down. Now, uh, this man, Jethro, and I'm sorry, but gosh, growing up with the Beverly Hillbillies as a kid, I just can't get that guy out of my mind. This guy was a dignified, it says a priest of Midian. And so this was, this was a, a, a man of considerable capability and respect and the like. Sorry, had to go there. Uh, <laughs> and he, he is a descendant of Midian. Now, Midian is one of the sons of Abraham. We know that Abraham had two sons. He had Isaac with Sarah. He had Ishmael with Hagar. And the, the narrative of, of Abraham's life really focuses on those two sons. One, Ishmael, the son of the flesh. The other, Isaac, the son of the spirit. 
But after Sarah passes, we know from Scripture that, uh, that Abraham married again, and he married a woman by the name of Keturah. And with Keturah, and this is mind-boggling because he was over 100 years old, so you talk about virility. Uh, you talk about, uh, well, anyway, we won't talk about it, but he had six sons with Keturah, and the fourth of those six sons was, was Midian. And so we know that Jethro and the Midianites are descendants of this son of Abraham. So they are a Semitic people. And um, when we see that, that Jethro is described as a priest of Midian, obviously the question that would come up in our mind would be a priest of which God? Who, who is the deity that, that Jethro served? And I think based on the context and, and the narrative of the chapter that we're in and some other places, it would appear that Jethro knows and serves the God of Abraham. Um, obviously, he does not have the revelation that ultimately Moses will receive, although he may have some of that imparted to him by Moses. But I think it's, it's a fairly safe assumption, and I think a lot of scholars agree on this, that, uh, that, that Jethro served the God of the Bible in, in, to the extent of the revelation that was made to him. And, uh, and so as he's coming to his son-in-law, he has already heard of the great and amazing things that have happened that resulted in the release of the, uh, of the Israelites from Pharaoh. And this would be a big deal. Everybody in that Middle Eastern, North African region of the world knew Egypt. They knew Egypt. They knew the power and the might of Egypt. They knew the magnificence of Pharaoh and his court. And, uh, and so to, to have this, this news account, if you will, coming out of Egypt, that this group of people that were pretty much the slaves of the, of the Egyptian economy being released en masse, that was big news. And so now here is, here is Moses, the man who effectively accomplished that through obviously the hand of God. And he, um, he's now <laughs> meeting up with his father-in-law again. And we pick it up in verse 7 and we read there that, so Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. So this would be the typical Middle Eastern hospitality. They go into the tent, they drink tea, they exchange stories, news about what's going on in one another's lives. They're catching up. And we read here that Moses, verse 8, told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done, had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. So Moses is giving a transparent, obviously uh, candid account. This was not all a bed of roses. It was all, not all uh, time for chest thumping on the part of the Israelites. They suffered a lot through the process of this release from Pharaoh's grip. Um, they, they really had to learn to trust God when they were lacking food in the wilderness. And then miraculously, God provides manna. They were three days without water, which, you know, from a physiological standpoint, that's getting to about the limit that people can go without water. And then the Lord provides that. He gives them deliverance from a formidable enemy. And these are all things that, that Moses is relating to his father-in-law. And it's interesting, the, um, 
the, the reaction that Jethro has, and this is another reason why I believe it's a safe assumption, that he is a priest of the Most High God. Because in verse 9 it says, Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And now get this, Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and, has, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods for in, in the very thing which they have behaved proudly, he was above them. First of all, we see that Jethro is, is speaking of the Lord, not the God of Israel, but the Lord. So clearly from the context and from his actual words, he recognizes that the God of Israel is the Lord. He is the Lord of Lords. And it's, it's nice to see him make the connection between what God was able to do in defeating Egypt because he knew he would have known well, as a, as a religious man of that time, he would have known well the pantheon of the gods of the Egyptians. He would have known how this powerful, powerful nation promoted their gods. And you got to remember, in the thinking of the people of the time, frankly, in the thinking of the people of our time, success and power was equated to strong gods. The world powers of the time, whether it was Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, whatever. Remember Sennacherib when he was, he, he was taunting Hezekiah and he's, he's saying, look, you're relying on your God. Well, look at all this roster of all these other nations we defeated. And every one of those nations relied on their gods and their gods were not able to save them from us. The underlying statement is our God's bigger than your God. Our God is stronger than your God. My dad can beat up your dad kind of thing. And so here is Jethro and he's saying, wow, Egypt was the world power of the time and the power of the God, the Lord. He calls him the Lord, not the God of Israel, the Lord defeated them. He says, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods for in the very thing in which they behave proudly, in other words, he's pointing to Egypt, probably saying, well, we've got the God of the sun. We've got uh, the God of the frog goddess. We've got all these different gods. Pharaoh himself is a God. Well, guess what? None of them could stand toe to toe with the God of, of the Israelites. And so this, this underscores and stokes the faith of Jethro. And I think in that moment, I think he's darn proud that he is a, a, a priest of the most high God. Then Jethro, verse 12, Moses' father-in-law took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. Notice again, he's not saying God of Israel, to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So, so this is a wonderful reunion. First of all, it is a, it is a, uh, a validation of the call, because remember, Moses is tending sheep for this very man, Jethro, his father-in-law. He's tending his father-in-law's sheep. He did that for 40 years. And then one day, he's telling his father-in-law, I have to leave here because God has spoken to me from a burning bush. You know, I mean, in our day, if someone said that, they'd say, you sure you didn't encounter some mushrooms along the way to that burning bush? Because this would sound so incredible. And when people actually answer a call that seems to go against all logic and reason, 
This is both a time when you could suffer a lot of, of derision and mocking, but it's also a time to really demonstrate the power of God. So Jethro's seeing his son-in-law to go off to speak before the most powerful man in the, in the, in the world uh, in a country that sought to murder him, which was the reason he left it 40 years prior. And now he sees the net result of that calling. That, that on the very place where they are, in the Sinai, and, and on the Mount of God, as it's called, he had received that initial call from the burning bush. He goes to Egypt. He does exactly what God tells him. And through a series of nothing short of miracles, there they are now drinking tea in Moses' tent. The elders have come. They've, they've made sacrifices to the Lord. They're worshiping God because of his greatness and his goodness. And so now we move on in verse 13. So as so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. Now, again, we don't know exactly the size of the company of people that left Egypt, the Israelites, but it would probably have been in the at the very minimum, the hundreds of thousands and many estimate millions and, and so these people are lining up to speak to Moses about adjudicating matters between people. You, you know, in the relationships of people, there's always going to be contention. There's always going to be disagreements. There's going to be contracts that are broken or whatever. And so they have, morning till night, they're before Moses. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me and I judge between one and another and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. Now, the answer that Moses gives is a pretty good answer because what is implicit in this situation is that people are looking to God to, to provide a framework of law that would, that would organize, that would, that would make their relationships fair and just. And unfortunately, the only one that really can discern and to impart the law of God at this moment is Moses. As he says there, I make known the statutes of God and his laws. And it, and it was important to Moses and it was important to the people that as they go through their daily life and as they encounter uh, conflict, they want to do the right thing and resolve it relative to what God has to say on the matter. Um, oh, that we were that, that kind of people. I mean, this was the way in which our country was initially set, set up. From the very foundation of it, we recognize that every human being possesses unalienable rights. These are rights that cannot be abrogated or taken away. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. On the basis of possessing those rights, we then construct a way in which, according to God, we're one nation under God, according to God, we can have a judicial framework that promotes justice, fairness, and all of that. This was the way we were set up. This is the way they were set up. Notice Jethro's reaction. 
to the manner in which Moses is carrying out this noble, uh, this noble venture. Verse 17. <laughs> so Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you do is not good. Now, he doesn't say that it's not good because uh, Moses didn't care about what he was doing. He didn't say that it wasn't good because the job was beneath Moses. He didn't say it wasn't good because the people really didn't want to hear from Moses. No, he said it's not good because the job is too big for one man. The job is too big for one man. Think of it this way. The Lord births the church on the day of Pentecost. And then shortly after that, he, he, he knocks Paul the apostle off his high horse. And he says that, Paul, you're going to be the, the man that I'm going to set before the Jews, the Gentiles, and kings. And you're going to suffer many things for my, my kingdom. Can you imagine if rather than going throughout Judea and Samaria and then Asia Minor and then Europe, establishing churches, could you imagine if Paul just pretty much tried to go end to end from Europe to Asia to Europe to Asia as the only one preaching the gospel, as the only one ministering to the people. We'd say, well, that's a noble endeavor. Unfortunately, it's impossible. It doesn't honor God, and it's going to kill you. And this is what Midian is looking at. He's looking at Moses, who's sitting probably on a, on a throne, a stool of some sort, and he's hearing these grievances all day long. And, and, and at the end of the day, as the sun is setting, there's still a line to the horizon of people. It's pretty much like motor vehicles. You just, only it's like motor vehicles only standing on the surface of the sun because it's hot there. And so, uh, and so he's, uh, Jethro is saying, this is not good. Verse 18, both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out for this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Now, this is just truth, okay? This is, this is wisdom. And um, what I'm about to say doesn't, doesn't apply to anybody I know, but a lot of people have a hard time taking advice from their in-laws, right? You know, in-law says something, mother, mother-in-law, father-in-law, uh, I don't think you're doing that right. Here, let me show you. And so Jethro says, both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out for this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Now, stopping right there for a second, I'm going to guess that, that Jethro knows what he's talking about. If he is a priest of Midian and in most of the cultures of that time, the governance of them was kind of like a theocracy, not a theocracy that is ruled by the true and living God because a lot of these different nations were, were pretty much pagan, right? But the, there was a merger of their theology and their politics because they, they, they sought to appease and to obey the gods over them. And so what they would legislate or what they would rule in, in any given instance I'm sure they made every effort to make it such that it would conform to what they believed their God was saying. And so as a priest of Midian, as a man who had enough flocks that it kept Moses busy for 40 years, 
He was probably someone who had a lot of people depending on him, looking to him for wisdom, for adjudication, and the like. So I think he knows what he's talking about. And this is what he says. And he actually gives a real nice three-step process by which Moses can expand the, 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 the group or the ministry of adjudicating matters before the people. So the first thing he tells them is, Stand, this is verse 19, stand before God for your people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. What he's essentially saying here is pray. Stand before the people. Maybe you even want to start out the prayer by acknowledging, Lord, we have many things that trouble us. We have many things that bring us together in conflict. We know that the answer to all conflict resides with you and your law. And so we are here today to bring before you our petitions together nationally and to pray, Lord, that you would raise up the right leaders amongst us to be able to speak into the lives of your people. This is the first step that Jethro is giving them is that, that uh, you know, first step, we need you, Moses, need to pray before your people. The second thing that he tells them is in verse 20. And you, Moses, shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and work and the work they must do. So the second step, don't give them a fish, teach them to fish. And, and you know, the, the, the time-worn metaphor, but in this context, it is teach them the law. Don't just give them the answer from the law, teach them the law. This, this frankly, is, is the reason why Paul would describe the ministry that I'm doing right now, the pastor-teacher role, as equipping the saints for the ministry. The idea is to teach the saints the law, teach the saints the word of God. Because in knowing the word of God, a lot of matters that you might think need to be brought before an adjudicator don't need to be because having known the law, you, you head off the conflict at the pass. People who know the word of God tend to act in accordance with it mostly. And when you got a body of people acting uh, together in, in deference and under submission to the law, you'd be surprised how many conflicts that eliminates. You'd be surprised how people relate one to another with grace, with mercy, with understanding, with sacrifice, with helps. And so this, this is a great next step. I've prayed now, Lord, show us the way. Now I'm going to teach them the way. And then the third step is in verse 21. Moreover, you shall select from all the people. Now, here are, here are some um, criteria he gives. Again, the, the wisdom of, of Jethro is, is spot on, pure gold. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of 50, rulers of tens. Now, as the Lord would have it, just this past Sunday, we were in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, and we looked at the qualifications of overseers or bishops, elders, and deacons. And the same wisdom that is being imparted by Jethro is found there. What's Jethro telling? Jethro is telling Moses, find able men. That's men of ability. That ability should come from, from 
uh, an anointing of God. This is why you start with prayer. Uh, God enables the called. He doesn't call the able always. Sometimes he does, but usually he enables those that he calls. So look for the able men that have been called. He said, such men that fear God, these are men who are, have, who are godly. They possess godliness. They, they, they fear God and therefore they are respectful of God. They reflect the glory of God. Men of truth, he said there in, verse, uh, in, in that passage. These are men of the word of God. And then men who don't covet. These are men of honor. Well, if we look at what we saw just on Sunday, what Paul said about a bishop must be blameless, temperate, sober, man of one wife, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, one who rules his own house, not a novice, not somebody who, who is in it just for the money. All the same kind of principles of leadership that Jethro was, was proposing to Moses the Apostle Paul is here speaking to Timothy in the context of the, uh, the, the New Testament church. Uh, we know, for example, in Acts chapter 6, that the whole movement of appointing deacons, in other words, people who could help with the ministry, was motivated in Acts chapter 6 by the 12 apostles summoning the church and saying, look, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business so that they could continue studying the word and praying over the flock. So, so that principle of expanding the tent of leaders, of equipping, praying over them, f teaching them the word of God, and then looking for the men who are exemplary examples of what a person of God should be. Paul in 2 Timothy would tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others. So this, this process by which we, a minister of God, taking in somebody that you can mentor, bless them, pray over them, teach them, and as you've taught them, then enable them and enable them to go out and to help with the ministry that, uh, that, that blesses the people. This is exactly what Midian um, or what uh, Jethro is, is proposing to Moses. He says in verse 22 of our text, and let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure and all the people will also go to their place in peace. So he's saying, Moses, you can have a life. Uh, you know, you, 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 can, you can rest assured that having prayed over these people, having taught them the word of God, having looked over the, the, the body of men that you've now taught and selecting out those that fit the criteria that Jethro gave him, that Paul gives to Timothy, that we read in the, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, you can rest assured that the Holy Spirit is going to be working in the hearts of these men. He's going to be working through the word of God just as he has been doing with you, Moses, so you can rest easy. And the people could rest easy because they know that the matters that they are bringing up that affect them in their lives now have a, 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 a more efficient way of being addressed. And verse 27, 
Or verse 26, so they judged the people at all times. The hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart and went on his way to his own land. Now, what we're learning here is that to Moses' credit, Moses took the advice. Moses didn't push back. He didn't say, excuse me, uh, dad, but I'm the guy who led the people out of Egypt. I'm the guy who has this really cool stick. And with this stick, I turned rivers into blood. I parted the Red Sea. I took the people through. I raised my arms and we won a battle. I, 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 me, me, me. He didn't do that. We read in, I think it's in the book of Numbers, that Moses was the most, the, the meekest and most humble man on the earth. The only part that troubles me about that statement is Moses wrote it. And you know how it is when, when, you, when you brag on your humility. But he, the Holy Spirit was guiding his hand. He didn't want to write it, but he couldn't help it. Most humble man. Um, but he was teachable. He had humility. And I think more than anything else in ministry, and I don't care how many years you've been doing it, I don't care how big your platform is. I don't care how many people tune into your podcast, watch you on YouTube or anything else. We must be teachable. And sometimes the teaching comes from, from, um, comes from sources we would least expect. I tell this story all the time because it made such an impact on me. Way back in the day, in the Bill Gallatin years, when we started going to Calvary Chapel of the Finger Lakes, and Bill wanted, the pastor wanted to start home fellowships. And so Michelle and I raised our hands. We had a finished basement. We said, here, this is a perfect place. And in the early days, Bill came himself to our basement and taught the Bible study. It was wonderful. And then he sent Bob Chapel, one of his assistant pastors. And then after that, Bob Chapel sent some ministry students. And these guys were totally wet behind the ears. I mean, they were totally wet behind the ears. And in those days, at our home fellowships, we did worship and then word, kind of like a little mini service. And these guys couldn't sing. They couldn't play. They sure tried. And then they taught the word of God. Very elemental. I was a new believer. And, and for a moment there, I was a little bit like, I could do that. I've just been a Christian for like a year. But then as I listened to them, what overwhelmed me was these guys were in the spirit. These guys were walking with the Lord and what they were bringing to us was pure gold. And, I, and, and what I learned in that day is, is what I said earlier, which is God doesn't call the able. God enables the call. These men were called. They were probably in their earlier mid-20s. And you could tell that they were living the dream. And that just overwhelmed me with the idea that, you know, if the, if the Lord has his hand on your life, that, that you, can, you can do anything. I mean, you could literally do anything. Moses, a sheep herder for 40 years, a guy who tried to beg off of the calling because he didn't talk real good. And he did all this. And he was teachable. And this is why Moses was able to do so much is because his ear was ever out there for what the Lord might bring to him. And he knew that the Lord wasn't always going to speak through a burning bush. Sometimes he was going to speak through someone else. 
And that someone else is going to bring him pure gold. And so I, I, I love this, this passage here because the wisdom of it is undeniable. And so much undeniable wisdom gets buried over with manure because of pride. People, people will push back on it, will reject it, will we'll miscast it, will hide it, will obfuscate it because to accept it would mean I have to learn something. And that's a shame. None of us in the family of God and certainly nobody who leads the flock of God should, should embrace that kind of uh, mentality. So now, and, and this is, <laughs> here's where I'm going to have some regrets because um, there's this Wednesday and next Wednesday and then I'll be out. So I won't be able to take you to the Ten Commandments, but we're getting to the doorstep because we read now in, in ch- chapter 19, Israel is now at Mount Sinai, also known as Mount Horeb. In the third month, so this is now three months after they left Egypt. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, where they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai, and had camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountains. Now, I think I mentioned earlier, but like 57 chapters of Scripture are devoted to what happens to Israel in the, in the, in the year that they're going to be in this very place. And this, this place, uh, you know, it took them three months to get to this place, trusting God to bring them here. They saw God's deliverance from Egypt. They received his guidance on which way to go. And by the way, the way that the Lord took them was not the obvious way. It was not the via... Mare, which would have taken them right along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. No, we're going to go to the wilderness of Sin. Then we're going to go to the wilderness of Sinai. They saw God's provision of, of manna and of water and of victory over the enemy. And now they're at this very special place. Um, Charles Ryrie, a great pastor, great Bible commentator and teacher, he writes that Mount Sinai is believed to be Jebel Musa, a 7,500-foot peak at the south end of the, of the Sinai Peninsula. And at the foot of this peak, there is a, a plain. It's like two and a half miles long, about half a mile wide. And it's believed that the Israelites camped on that plain. And they were there before this mountain. And this mountain is the place, this area was the place where it all started for Moses on this quest to um, bring God's people out of bondage and to establish them as God's special chosen people. If you'll recall when we were in Exodus 3, verse 12, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So now comes the fruition of that prophecy that God gave him, is that you'll be back. And you'll be serving me here. And so this was a very, very special place. It was the place that Moses had the burning bush experience. um, And that the people are here meeting with God is only possible because Moses was obedient to the call that God gave him when he was there. The people could not have gone there without Moses having been there first. This is why every Sunday when we get ready to, to start 
worship. You know, the worship band comes early. We do our, our um, sound check. And we always pray as a worship team that as we get ready to run through the songs and everything, that the, God, that the Lord would, would break down our hearts, would open our hearts to lay aside what we may have brought in there that is of us and receive him without any, any obstruction. Because the desire of the worship team, it's not to perform, heavens to Betsy, no, it's to bring everybody else into that place. A way to say it would be to bring them to the mountain of God. And we can't bring anybody to a place that we haven't been to first. And this is why, you know, you ask pastors, what's the most troublesome part of your ministry? They'll say, well, I'll give you the top three. The worship team is number one. Worship team is number two. And the worship team is number three. And the reason is, for well, there's a lot of reasons, but one of them is that it's the easiest ministry to corrupt because, because there is a, a performance element to it, if you will. I mean, David was a very skilled songwriter, singer, and musician. And his first place in a royal court was the musician that played for, the, for King Saul. And, and it was a, it, he was so good at it that Saul was chucking spears at him. And, and you know, you could, it should be the vehicle by which the church is brought into the presence of God. And it can only be that if the people who are providing the leadership of worship have been there, are there. If they are there to impress with smoke machines and earplugs so that they could play as loud as they want, it's not likely, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's not likely you're going to get there. You're going to be somewhere else. And you may feel a spirit, a spirit, but not the spirit. So it's, it's something that has to be done very carefully because the worship team cannot bring the body to a place that they are not occupying or that they haven't been. And so that Moses could bring these people here, I think is in large part due to the fact that he was obedient to follow God um, when he got the command right in that same place. Uh, Verse three, and Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings And brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Now, this little pronouncement by God is monumentally important to understand and awful lot of scripture this is the moment where god is now telling them through moses moses is getting the message from god now he's going to bring it to the people this is the moment where the israelites realize god did not deliver them so that they could be who they want and do what they want god delivered them to be a special verse five a special treasure to me above all people, 
For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God is here giving them the commission, you're going to be my ensign. You're going to be the flag of God waving amongst the nations. People are going to know that I am the Lord God because of you. If you will keep my covenant, then you're going to be a special treasure because you're going to be a living testimony to the power and the, and the authenticity of the God of the Bible. And this, be, this begins the commission of Israel as a special people, a called out people, a special treasure as he calls it, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, to the extent that Israel in its history remained faithful to the covenant, they were every bit of that. I think to the kingdom of Solomon. In the early years of the kingdom of Solomon, he was tracking with the Lord. The Lord gave him wisdom that surpassed anything any human being had had until that time and in that time. And, and, and he made the kingdom of Israel magnificent, so much so that kings and, and queens from around the world were coming to just sit at his feet, learn from his wisdom, and take in the glory of Israel. Now notice, because there are a couple things that are said here that become part of the lexicon of the New Testament. Again, I'll point you to, for example, the book of Revelation. Many churches skip right over the book of Revelation. If you ask their pastors, why don't you teach this? They say, well, it's, it's just too obtuse. Who could know what it really means? There's all these crazy references and things that don't make any sense. People can't follow it. I don't even know what it says. Well, watch this. Look at verse 4, for example. God is going to tell the people through Moses, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, clearly, since we, this, is, this statement is being made after they've already come out of Egypt, and we know how they did that. They didn't all climb onto a big bird and fly out of there. This is, this is a metaphor that God is using because the eagle is a symbol of power. It's a symbol of might. It's a symbol of majesty and power that, that got them out of that. And so he, he describes this in terms of eagle's wings, the security of it, the power of it, the certainty of it. Well, lo and behold, that terminology is used again. Where is it used? Why, it's used in the book of Revelation. Because during the midst of the tribulation, this is what we read, Revelation 12, verses 13 and 14. Now, when the dragon, we know that the dragon is referenced to Satan, saw that he had been cast to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. That would be Jesus. But the woman, that would be Israel, was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nursed for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Okay, so we break it down. The dragon is Satan. Satan hates God. Satan hates Israel. Satan is having his way in the midst of the tribulation. This is now at the midpoint of the tribulation when Satan's surrogate, Antichrist has gone into the temple, has declared himself to be God, which is the abomination that brings desolation that Jesus spoke of and the prophet of Daniel spoke of. And yet we read here that the woman, which would be Israel, who is being persecuted mercilessly by the Antichrist, 
is given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, that would be a year, and times, that would be two more years, and half a time, which would be a half a year, which equates to the second half of the tribulation period, the time when really the gates of hell are wide open. And, and Israel is preserved. And this is what many biblical scholars believe is the time when God supernaturally in some way brings them out to a place of protection. Many believe it to be the rock city of Petra, which is across the Jordan River in, in Jordan, which we have visited on our last two, or our two, two of our last three uh, visits to Israel. Uh, and it's a magnificent place, by the way. And you could see, when you see the topography of it, how this could be a great fortress to protect God's people. But this imagery of, of a great eagle on wings of an eagle being taken out of the trouble, out of, uh, out of the heat of the persecution of Antichrist and brought to a place of safety it's simply using the same metaphor that God used in speaking to the children of Israel right here in Exodus. This is why I can't say it enough, enough times, that you need to be a student of the whole Bible to understand that the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And the things that we read in the New Testament have already been established in the truth of the old. And this is why it's so important for this church that we have an Old Testament study and then we have a New Testament study. And you'd be surprised over time if you continue with this, these little tiles of the mosaic, the jigsaw puzzles on your table, and you're looking on the cover of the box, it's supposed to be a puppy. But I just don't see it yet. And then all of a sudden, a little tail is wagging and there's a little nose and it is a puppy. And that's kind of the way it is when we go through scripture. Interesting that he calls it, here's another illusion uh, or metaphor that, it's not even a metaphor, it's a fact. He refers to Israel that they will be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. They are a chosen people. They are a set apart people. Well, guess what? The church is that too. Not to replace Israel, let's not go there, but as a different work, a different dispensation that God is working. And lo and behold, the same thing is said about the church in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. We read from Peter's pen, but you, church, are a chosen generation. Israel was a chosen generation as well. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. You see it here in Exodus chapter 19. His own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now uh, the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. The, think, the instance is not the same. We have not replaced the, the Israel. They are a chosen people. God has a purpose and a plan for them, clearly spelled out in scripture, will not be abrogated, has not been changed. Nothing is different. But this, the mystery that is the church that was unknown previously to the day of Pentecost and the teaching of Jesus and then Paul, God has a similar kind of, of use for the church in that we represent a priesthood, if you will, in that we can intercede for sinners, we can teach the world the word of God, we can live out the example of Christ among the people that we affect in our lives. And so what God is telling them here is, look, nation of Israel, I have called you out because you are special to me. 
And if you want to understand how we are special to God, go and read Ephesians chapter 1. Because in that chapter, Paul lays out very clearly how carefully God chose us since before the foundations of the world. He's elected us. He is, he is, he is sancti- he sanctified us. He has justified us. He's got a purpose and a plan for our lives. It's, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing description of just how valuable you are to the Lord. And this is more or less what he's telling Israel here in this passage. And then what's going to transpire from here, and we'll get into a little of it next week. Uh, hopefully we'll finish, yeah, we'll probably finish chapter 19. And then I'll leave it to you to read the Ten Commandments on your own. But um, you'll see this build up, this foundation that God is making and building here. How vital it is in the understanding of the Jewish nation. How God has called it out, what he plans to do with it. And so we'll pick that up next time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father God, oh, what an amazing and powerful expose, Lord, of the love that you have for your people, the plan you have for your people, the things that, uh, that you wanted to do and, and have done through them, Lord. And Lord, we can only see the parallels with the called out people that are now the church. And the, and, and the enormous responsibility but privilege that you've given us, Lord. May we hear the words, the voice of the Lord as they did at that time. We are not on the Mount of God. We are not on Mount Sinai. But we have the Holy Spirit living in our hearts, Lord. And so in many ways, we're closer to you than anyone could ever be. I pray, Lord, that we would ever be listening and receiving what you have for us, Lord. How you guide us how you chastise us, how you encourage us, how you bless us. Thank you, God, for saving us. Thank you, God, for living in us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.